You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas. And joining us, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing? I'm doing all right. I see that uh, up here on the north side, they don't even really mess around with plowing the streets, do they? Oh, no. No. City Hall, they don't care about us. Over here? The downtrodden? That's right. See where I live with the with the taxpayers? Uh, they actually are taking care of the streets pretty well. And then I come up here, and it's a, it's a damn skating rink. Well, you know why that is? It's because you live in a neighborhood with a lot of uh, geriatric types, older older people, because you live in a neighborhood that was the cat's meow in the 60s and 70s. That's right, it was. Uh, and those people will call. Yeah. Like, if they don't get their streets plowed, yeah. they will well, call. And, I mean, if I don't shovel my driveway in time, I'll probably have to have a conversation with somebody on my street about it. And it won't be mean, but it'll be something where I'm walking by uh, and, uh, you know, one of my my neighbors who has a lot of time on his hands and who gets to just kind of look out the window all day will, will mention how I must be pretty busy. Must be really busy. Can't really get to it over there. Then he'll offer to come come do it for me if I get too busy, um, just to shame me with the idea of like an 80-year-old man shoveling my driveway for me. That is shameful. Yeah. Uh, a couple of big announcements, Ben, before we get started. First of all, we need to send a shout out to Jared in Canada, who sent us a book this week. He figures we need some book learning, I okay. guess. Uh, the, the book, One Game at a Time, Why Sports Matter by Matt Hearn. Uh, which looks like an interesting book. He sent along the accompanying note. Uh, I've never felt the need to reconcile my politics with my love of sport, but Matt Hearn obviously has. This guy makes some really interesting points about sports as it, as vehicles of social change. Hope you enjoy it, Jared in Canada. So thanks for that. You know how you can tell when somebody is thinking deeply about sports is when they refer to it as sport. Yeah, or if they write a book okay, about too. it. Yeah. Speaking of books, Ben... I don't know if you saw this, a sample chapter of my forthcoming novel, Champion of the World, appeared at my website today. I did. I did see that. I didn't know you had a website, first of all. ChadDundas.com, motherfucker. Okay. Uh, also, you know I've read like three different drafts of that book by now. Yeah. So how did you enjoy the sample chapter? Love it? You Five know, I didn't, stars, I, didn't, I didn't read it all the way through the sample chapter because I've read it so many goddamn times by now, but... Uh, uh, did you take my advice about uh, renaming? Nope. I can just stop you right there. <laughs> nope. I did not take your advice. Okay. Well, then I don't need to read it. There you go. Everyone else does, though, if they haven't if they haven't got to it yet. Yeah. And, le- you know, let's hope they're still publishing books by 2016 and uh, people can actually read that bad boy. If they're not, I'm just going to post it on the MinderNet. Okay. It's the internet that goes straight into your brain that we'll have when our children grow up. When are we going to go out and spend all the money that you made from it? Uh, we are doing that as we speak. <laughs> okay. All right. It's not as fun as I thought it would be. I'll be honest with you. <laughs> ben, this week's music comes to us from Mushroom Jesus from the big island of Hawaii. I like what I'm hearing so far. Pretty good stuff. I think if you like what you hear, you can check out his or hers, I guess, uh, music on SoundCloud, soundcloud.com slash Coco Splat. What? Slash Coco Splat. So I don't know if you had a name change go on there, but we'll post a link of that at our site, comainevent.com, when we get the, this episode posted. 
I'm looking forward to hearing what Mushroom Jesus has to offer. It's good stuff, man. Okay. All right. D- DJ, producer, I don't know what the kids call it today. Some some elect- electronic music. You're right. You don't know. You don't <laughs> A- know what they ambient, call it. Ambient. Some ambient. I got an idea. Let's move on. Three rounds, as usual, for the co-main event podcast this week. In round number one, John Jones is still the king of the damn world. He's just too too good. And in round number two, did you ever want to know what fuck you kicks look like? I did. Now we know. Huh. And in round number three, wait, hold on. You didn't think we were just going to spend one round talking about Jones Cormier, did you really? If you did, look, we're not mad. We just expected a little more from you. We're just disappointed. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time... Let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. Uh, Sir Nigel Longstock is under the weather this week. You know, he's frequently other than the weather. Have you noticed that? Yeah, well, you know why. Uh, Frequent HIV? carousing. Oh. No, no, not, not the HIV. They, they got that under control. Okay. Uh, it's all his carousing? It's the running around the with, young, houses? with young women. Okay. On jet planes, going over to Clooney's house for actor parties. That'll, that'll take a toll on you. First question this week comes to us from Farron Hankinson, or Farron Hankinson. What's a fake name, obviously, so let's not worry too All much right. about he, it. He or she writes, hey, fellas, a little irritated. I rolled into the weekend on the high of the feeling going into a huge fight weekend with a great main event and a solid rem- remainder of the card providing all the reason to purchase the pay-per-view until I saw the price. Similar to UFC 168, this too was raised $5 simply because they could, and we were expected to go along sucking the teat. Wow, that's graphic. Yeah, it is. That is a really, graphic. it's an image. I, I don't like the image. Yeah, I'd prefer he didn't. It's becoming increasingly more and more expensive to be an MMA fan from programming that contains the Fox Sports channels and Fight Pass subscription. And this may have been the latest stunt to lead to myself and hopefully others to have to put our foot down. Uh, we're not presented with the opportunity to have prices lowered for substandard pay-per-views, but we are expected to pay more for a card with the adequate star power. This this all while Dana White imports snow to Las Vegas and refusing to increase fighter pay and pulling the plug on out-of-competition drug testing. I did not buy this card, and I kept my $60 merely on principle. I found the increase egregious. Ooh. Yeah, check out the big vocabulary on Ferran Hankinson. Uh, do you guys feel as wronged as I do as consumers of a product are slowly becoming alienated from a sport that was once much? Okay, we get what's going on here. Uh, you know what? Obviously, we feel... Ferran Hankinson's pain here. We've talked about this on the podcast a bunch before. We said at the time that they raised the price of UFC 168, which was the Anderson Silva versus Chris Weidman rematch. Uh, that, you know, if they do that once, it's going to be easier for them to do it again. Lo and behold, here we are, uh, some 13 or 14 events later and, uh, they they have raised the price, I think, not only for UFC 182, but the next couple, right? Yeah. Didn't we get an across-the-board change for the next few events, at least? Yeah, the time is now to raise the prices <laughs> on pay-per-views, apparently. Which, yeah, you know, and, and all of the points made in this email, I think, is all stuff we've said on the show before. and It's all right. It is becoming more and more expensive to be a UFC fan. Uh, it is becoming more and more taxing on our time and the demands that are placed on fans. Uh, but also I think you can't be too surprised just because of what, you know, we've seen this happen before. We think it's the, the trend is going to continue when you have, uh, bigger and bigger fights. Uh, and I'm going to come out and say, 
even though I went to your house to watch the pay-per-view and therefore did not purchase it myself. <laughs> there you go. Uh, that helps. I think this fight was worth it. Okay. The thing I think is a, is a valid point, though, is that if you're going to raise it for some and not others, like if you if you're just saying like, okay, from now on, all UFC pay-per-views cost five extra dollars. Then I think that is in a weird way more defensible because you're just saying like, hey, you know, inflation or whatever, the price went up. Like prices go up on stuff. Like we're used to that as consumers. But if you're doing it because you think like, hey, this time we actually have a good one. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and raise the price because we think you'll pay for it. We think you'll do a lot of bitching and complaining about it, but we think you'll pay for it. Um, so we're going to go ahead and raise the price on this one. Um, but then when we have, you know, one of the more forgettable ones, We'll bring it back down to the old price. Then you, whether you wanted to or not, you created two classes of pay-per-views. And you've told us that you think some are good and some are not so good. Uh, and I think that is a problem. Like, if you do that, then you're telling us that, like, the price is at least somewhat dependent on what you perceive as the quality. Except that you're not going to knock the price down below the normal range when you have a shitty one. I think that that's the, the good point here made by Farron Hankinson, uh, is that you're not it's not working the same way in the other direction but you are whether you want to or not you're telling people like here's when we think these are good which also means you're telling us whether you want to or not here's when we think they're not that good yeah that's a good point and i guess if the uh instant pay-per-view by analysis that we got from dana white at the press conference after the show uh although i know that there was widespread incredulity about that whether or not he actually had numbers that fast if they went way over 750k on this show seems like it worked well and uh, I, I saw people talking about uh how when they did it for ufc 168 and looking at the buy rate that it didn't seem like it uh or was it ufc 175 no it was 168, 168 uh, where where it didn't seem like the buy rate was significantly harmed by upping at five dollars and you could see why it seems like that a, a good idea to the ufc because five dollars times seven hundred and fifty thousand adds up to a lot of money but to the individual purchaser it's like well if i was already paying 55 bucks which is kind of a lot to say stay home and watch tv then what's 60 bucks you right. know yeah and obviously i feel the consumer's pain on this uh i will also say though for a fight company that regardless of whether or not it it is committed to keeping a stiff upper lip about how things are going we know for a fact 2014 was a rough one got the credit re rating reduced twice uh and i'm not gonna say that i'm okay with raising the price on the big selling pay-per-views but i do understand yeah okay i understand too but i also think that it's it's a valid point to point out that uh People notice when you're importing snow to your home in Las Vegas and then off surfing like on a secret island in, in the middle of the ocean somewhere. Sending those tweets out while a group of disgruntled fighters are announcing a class action lawsuit. Right. Accusing you of uh, various pernicious business practices. Right. And like guys are, are fighting on your pay-per-views who have to have side jobs just to get by. I mean, people are going to notice that stuff. But I think this is also kind of a thing that, that the UFC does from time to time, right? Like the UFC... Uh, kind of loves to take for granted its hardcore fan base. Like, it just they, they don't deserve those people, by the way. <laughs> well, and it just like kind of assumes that they'll always be there and that they'll pay for this stuff. Uh, and the the fans that the UFC wants are, are always the other people, always people it doesn't have yet. Like, and you can understand why that's a you know a business minded approach to to the sport is like, hey, they're always trying to grow the sport. They always want new people to be watching it. But then it creates a thing where like once you become once the the new people who who aren't watching it yet become the hardcore fans, once you get what you want, then what? like as soon as they 
as soon as they be, become what you want them to be, then you stop caring about them as much. Uh, I think that's a problem. Second question this week comes from Ross Miller. He writes, this past weekend, one fight that stuck in my mind was the Lombard-Berkman fight, mostly because Lombard was billed as the super tough guy who could ragdoll other men at a moment's notice. Not only was there no ragdolling, but the fight was kind of slow-paced. Do you think, A, Berkman really is as good as Rogan was telling us he was during the fight, B, Lombard maybe not so scary after all, or C, since Lombard was talking about taking another fight on short notice, he wanted to get in get a win and get out unharmed so he could fight again soon. Since this seems to be the phrase that gets questions read, discuss this shit. Uh, I get, well, I, you know, this was a surprising fight, kind of the way it played out. I thought something really bad was going to happen to Josh Berkman. And we know that since coming down to 170 pounds, uh, Lombard has been, uh, uh, pretty, uh, impressive. Um, he's also a guy that's known to fade down the stretch a little bit in his fights, uh, because as the UFC broadcast t- team never hesitates to point out, uh, he carries a lot of muscle mass. Oh, his, you know, I hadn't thought of that on, as, on a, as a possible explanation. Huh. Uh, and they love to talk about how all those bless, uh, muscles need blood and, and oxygen to run and how the guys get tired when they have that frame. Uh, so yeah, this, this fascinating stuff. This was a surprising fight the way it played out. Uh, we did find out immediately afterward that both guys at least said they were sick so you know you got two guys under the weather out there trying to do it oftentimes this is what it looks like josh berkman would have us believe he was barely alive did you see like the his list of of complaints and i mean i'm not saying this is not necessarily untrue but you're saying it was the worst camp of his life he listed sprained ankle like dislocated rib hurt his hip uh got sick and had to get on antibiotics like just Everything you could possibly imagine. Yeah, so I think what you had in this fight was, uh, you know, several different things happening at once. Maybe they were both under the weather, as they both said, although show weather did show up, regardless of the weather. I see what you did there. Uh, still trying to get my arms around that yeah. nickname. So okay, I think, well, I think also- you had that. I think you had Hector Lombard trying to pace himself because he's known to gas out down the stretch in fights. And I do think that Josh Berkman, 9-2 and two since you know his last UFC run uh, and pretty impressive in World Series of Fighting the, the last couple of years, is maybe a little bit better of a fighter than you know we're inclined to think because we've seen so much of him. We think he's a proven commodity, but like I think he's a dude who's just like a, a, a tough veteran who's been around a long time and, and is legitimately pretty hard to put away. See, that's the point that I was going to make is I can see how people will want to look at this and say, well, we were expecting Lombard to do something terrifying and violent. And it seems like maybe the UFC was expecting that too, which is why they kicked off the pay-per-view with him. But uh, Berkman took some monster shots in that. I mean, those punches, a lot of them, they put most welterweights away. And he he took some really hard shots. I don't think you can say that Lombard necessarily eased off the gas on him. There were several times when he was going after him uh, and putting some really hard punch combos on him, hitting him with big stuff, and Berkman was taking it. And Berkman also, let's be honest, wasn't really pressing that fight very much. You know, he was he was backing away, he was circling away, and uh, standing with his back to the fence a lot, trying to get Lombard to come in so he could counter. Uh, and maybe that was a game plan that had to kind of change for him based on whatever injuries and illnesses and the, the plague and whatever else uh, he was dealing with and being you know possessed by a demon and all that other worst stuff. Worst camp of his life, man. Yeah. Worst Which, camp of his life. By the way, I'll just point out, I saw him at Extreme Couture uh, in the beginning of December. I'm not saying that you know I could like do an x-ray with my eyes and tell what was whoa, wrong whoa, with him. Whoa. Are you doing Dr. Joe Rogan here? Uh, he looked okay, is all oh. I'm saying. He looked all right. All like, right, well, there you he have seemed, it. He seemed, I mean, I'm not saying all that stuff. We're still like three weeks 
uh, three or four weeks after that point, so all that stuff could have happened to him then, or he could have just been masking those injuries. But he looked like he, I watched him train, and he looked like he was in, doing pretty well, and so I was pretty excited for that fight. But I mean, he did like I don't think you can just say. Hector Lombard let us down because he didn't put Josh Berkman away. I right. mean, he hit him with a lot of punches that will put most people away, and Berkman is a tough dude. He took him. Yeah, and I guess the good news is Hector Lombard ain't going nowhere. He's going to be around. We'll get to see him perform again. I, I uh, you know, you got, you'd like to think that Berkman also will get another shot, uh, especially if he came in with all those maladies, pre-existing maladies. A lot of maladies. Uh, so we'll get to see both these guys again. Set kind of a weird tone though, then for the rest of the night where you had uh, the last five fights on the card, all, all the fights on the main card go to decision. And with the exception of the, of the main event, I'm not sure that that any of them were, were stellar. Uh, next question this week comes from Rusty from Atlanta. He writes, in a press conference on Saturday, UFC Fight Pass announced they'll be adding uh, fight libraries for promotions such as TKO, King of the Cage, Cage Rage, Pancrase, and more. It was alluded to that some of the existing promotions could show live events on UFC Fight Pass in the future. I'm excited for this because I really have only been a hardcore fan since 2008, so on one hand, I'm looking forward to experiencing a lot of history, but on the other hand, I really think this is something... There's just something that the UFC could use in their upcoming class action lawsuit saying, quote, see, we support these local organizations. We're not trying to run them out of business. What do you guys think about this? Ben, these people are trying to make my King of the Cage DVD collection that I bought out of the bargain bin at Sam Goody circa like 2003 obsolete. I remember when you bought that and you were very happy about it. Uh, you brought it on over. Uh, to the house where we all used to congregate during grad school so we could watch some old Diego Sanchez fights where he'd be like 5-0 and fighting some dude wearing gym shorts. Uh, those are good times. Oh, yeah. But you know what? You know, if you're going to add, especially if you're going to add Pancrase, you know the only Pancrase fights I want to watch are the ones where Boss Rutten does like you know, director's cut commentary on his own fights, and it's hilarious. Because I don't know... Right, where you have, you've got to get those. the Boss Rutten uh, retrospective DVD collection. Yes, for yeah. That. Where, like, he... Didn't he, like, buy the rights to, like, his own Pancrase fights so that he could do his commentary and then release them? Like, our friend Brad Monahan had them, I believe, and he loaned them to me once, uh, and I watched it, and it's hilarious because it seems like Boss Rutten, for one thing, is watching them for the first time since... Like the fight actually happened, right? Uh, and he, it's he's just firing from the hip, man. He he's just watching it and he's like laughing at himself uh, and pointing out how little he knows about mixed martial arts and about like submission grappling and stuff at the time. And it's a, it's a great time because he'll just be watching it and going, "Ha! Look, what am I doing here? I don't know. I know nothing." Wow, uh, like it's yeah. a lot of fun. So like, if you're gonna do the Pancrase fights, please get Boss Rutten to comment on uh, all of them, not even just his. That's a that's a pretty good Boss Rutten impression you've got there. Thanks. Uh, this, I guess, is another step in the right direction for the fightpass.com. Um, and I do agree with, with Rusty from Atlanta that this will be a good and handy tool. Uh, you know, for people who are either trying to do research or fans that came along a little bit later and will get the opportunity to go back and, and see what promotions like Pancrase were all about. How many uh, people are really doing that, do you think? Well, How many people are going to go back and watch, like, let me see some TKO fights from like 2007? Right. I was just going to say, you know, I still, you're never probably going to shake my belief that the, the real uh, worth and value of a, of a digital streaming service like Fight Pass is always going to be the original live programming. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it's really, I guess having like new episodes of the Ultimate Fighter Brazil and the Ultimate Fighter Latin America and stuff like that on there is always a plus, but like live fighting events, I think are the reason that people are going to come to that service. Uh, and so it, it, the only thing that, that will really 
increase the value of, of Fight Pass, I think, is to to add more live fights. And, and Rusty alludes to it in this email saying that it's possible that some of these still existing promotions will will add their live events to Fight Pass, uh, which I think would do uh, a lot to to make the service a little bit of a better deal. And I'm frankly kind of surprised that they haven't done more of that. Uh, and I also think the point well, hasn't he, been around very long fight pass, like it's still pretty new, right? But you got all those organizations over there on access TV that, that, uh, seem like you can put their, their shows on your television network for probably very little. And so, uh, you know, I'm a, I thought that we'd see a more, more of a proliferation of the smaller events, especially after, uh, you know, putting Invicta on there seemed to make such a big splash and people were so happy about it. But I mean, that's the direction we're going, right? We're going to see that stuff maybe possibly on there in the future. Yeah. I, as for the, uh, the hypothesis that they're doing it all just, uh, with an eye toward the class action lawsuit. Which, I, every email that we get in 2015 will allege that something is being done yeah, well, for the class see, action lawsuit. Yeah, no, that's what, that's what I was going to say. Cause I think we're already starting to see, especially from like hardcore MMA fans. I think that, uh, there's a tendency to assume that everything is about that. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know about that. I, I think that, uh, I think it's an interesting point though, that you could, you could say that like, uh, but again, if you are going to make that argument, you do have to go out and, and put some of these smaller MMA promotions, live events on your, on your service. And if they did do that, you know, they might be able to, uh, to mention that during the class action lawsuit. But I believe, uh, to quote a word that my wife used when I asked her about it, I don't think it would be determinative. Listen to you. I, See, that, that may not be the word. If you're going to throw know. out like these terms, you probably should work on sounding a little more confident about determinative. it. <laughs> yeah. uh, next question comes to us from Lucas Cattell. Uh, he writes, is it just me or was it just uncomfortable to watch the group of drunk fans ask CM Punk questions at his Q and a and moving forward? Will this be the, quote unquote, the thing that follows him. Uh, I did not watch this live. I, I followed it on the Twitter machine, having been to other UFC live fan Q and A's before. Uh, it would really take a lot to get me to tune in to one again <laughs> yes. at this point. I do understand that the crowd in uh, Las Vegas had had two, three, four, five Steve Weisers before they showed soda up pops. before this event uh, and that it got a little awkward. But I also understand that CM Punk handled it like a guy who's been paid to get on the mic in front of a live crowd all of his adult life. So yeah. good on him for doing that. No, see, that's the thing I was thinking because uh, I looked at the video after we posted it on MMA Junkie and it seemed like, you know, if that was going to happen to somebody, good thing it was him. You know, good thing it wasn't somebody else who, you know, because he... For one thing, I don't see people doing that if it's Frankie Edgar or something, but I also don't see Frankie Edgar being able to, like, you know, play the stand-up comedian uh, handling hecklers uh, quite as well as a guy like CM Punk could. But uh, also, you have to wonder, like, what else do you, what do you want people to, to ask CM Punk? Like, what, what are the possible topics that are well, up for especially discussion? since they kicked the thing off, I think, by saying, keep your WWE questions to a minimum. Because, like, <laughs> yeah. you just cut out the dude's, like, like area of expertise. Like, his his uh, established knowledge base right yeah. there is, like, is just like Stephen eliminated. Hawking comes on and you're like, uh, let's not get all science-y here today, guys. Like, let's let's try and open up uh, for, for more topics. Like, yeah, I mean, he hasn't fought at all. He He's not even close to being able to talk about who he's going 
going to fight or when. You know, he just barely decided that he's going to train at Rufus Sport uh, and that he has a camp. And I mean, I talked to Duke Rufus today and, he, and I asked him, like, how long do you think until you can – he says, I'm not even going to throw him in with my guys yet. Like, I'm he's going to spar with me, like, just so I can take care of him a little bit. He's not even ready for team practice yet. And I was like, well, how long until he's ready for team practice? How long until he's ready to start thinking about when he can fight? And he's like – Ask me in a couple of weeks, you know, like he's not even at like that point yet. So what can you really ask him? What can you really talk to him about when it comes to MMA? Like it's pretty limited. Yeah. Uh, I saw earlier today that uh, Ben Askren, who had previously kind of uh, given CM Punk the raspberry, I, I guess you would say on Twitter said that he was stoked now to work with CM Punk coming to the Rufus camp, uh, which if I were CM Punk, I would take that as both good and bad news because I think when a top-level wrestler tells you that they are quote-unquote stoked to get you out there on the mat, you might learn some stuff. You might learn some of it the hard way. Yeah, well, maybe that's the only way to learn some of that stuff. Because I also I will have a story in uh, tomorrow's paper yeah, about it. Wait, uh, in the paper? Yeah. In the USA Today? In the USA Today. Oh, God, I better go check into a hotel room today. Get that <laughs> slipped under my door in the morning. There you go. Uh, but, you know, Ben Askren did not go so far as to say stoked when I asked him about it. But he was like, oh, you know, I'm excited as long as he's a friendly guy and he's ready to work hard. I'm sure we'll get along fine. And pointed out that, hey, the way I feel about it, I still feel that way. But I feel it toward the UFC. Like, I don't blame the guy for taken the opportunity when it's offered to him, which is kind of how I think we all feel about it. Like we're not really blaming CM Punk. Right. Uh, we're not blaming Phil Brooks for that. That's we're thinking that that's a questionable move on the UFC's part uh, and kind of a frustrating one if you're Ben Askren. Um, but yeah, I, I asked him if he'd be tempted to, uh, you know, maybe get on the mats. He is the team's wrestling coach, by the way, uh, to maybe get on there and show CM Punk as uh, your boy Cuddy might say uh, as gently as he can all the things he doesn't know. Uh, and Ben Askren kind of laughed, uh, and said, no, no, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do that. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I do think people need to realize though about that question with the Q and A thing. Like Vegas is a different fight environment all around right. than, you know, if they go to Columbus, Ohio, or they have a show in Houston or something like that. Cause, and you see it on fight night where people are slow to show up, they're quick to boo. Um, there's no real like regional loyalty necessarily because people come from all over, uh, and that's one of the things that the UFC likes about Vegas is kind of a destination anyway. Um, but also, when people are in Vegas, people are just fucking drinking like all day. And so you have your, you know, usually if you're in Houston and you have your, your fan Q&A before the weigh-ins, you do it at like 3 o'clock and you have the weigh-ins at 4, and some people are skipping out early on work, and they're not just hammered drunk, you know, because they, they're living their regular lives for the most part. But they're in Vegas, and they're in Vegas for the weekend. Yeah, man, they've been drinking out of some big plastic, like, Eiffel Tower-looking thing since 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, Chicago or Milwaukee, I would think, would be good environments to book your first CM Punk fight, since he's from Chicago and will be very popular there. And if he's going to train in Milwaukee at Rufus Sport, you'd think he would have some some fans behind him. Let me ask you this as a quick follow-up question, though. Uh, does this does seeing CM Punk get berated by drunk Las Vegians, Las Vegasians, Not even like Las Vegans. Las Vegos. People from all over, Californians, basically. uh, Drunk tourists. Does that make you feel bad for him at all? Because, like, it kind of does to me. 
Uh, we talked about the, when we first talked about him on the show. And as you just said, like, we don't blame him for this, right? Like, uh, as far as I know, the guy is in the sport for the right reasons. Like he, he's passionate about the sport. He wants to try his hand at it. He wants to have a couple of fights. I think he's well within his rights to try to do that for the organization that's going to pay him the most money. He seems to understand, uh, that he is 36 years old and doesn't necessarily have time to work his way up from the bottom. There are a ton of negatives that come along, I think, with the UFC signing him, uh, which we can discuss at a later date. But like, does it make you feel bad for him to see him get heckled essentially by a theater full of drunk tourists? Because like, I don't know that he particularly has done anything wrong here. Yeah, I mean, it makes me feel so very slightly bad until I think about a how much money he's getting paid. And B, how much shit he's probably already dealt with from drunk pro wrestling fans over the years working his way up the ranks uh, and into the WWE. I don't think he really got his feelings hurt too badly uh, from that. And also, I mean, maybe it's a little part of him coming into the new world and earning his stripes. It's like when Dylan like went electric. Of, a little he, bit of hazing. Yeah, he comes and, you know, Bob Dylan goes all over the country with people yelling at him every night to pick up an acoustic guitar and play Blowing in the Wind. Uh, and for him to just be like... All right, we're just gonna we're gonna take it on the chin all the way across the damn country, uh, and gradually people will come around to it. And you know, hey, fine, I, I don't feel too bad for the guy for that. Well, that's gonna do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the Co-Main Event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to our website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says "Email the Podcast." That will get you in touch with us. While you're there, you might as well sign up for the breakfast of champions newsletter that comes out every friday morning uh to catch you up on all the news and notes that we miss uh from monday to monday when we're not recording the podcast and we try to do it in kind of a fun way uh so sign up for that as for right now though we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one Ben, just as I suspected that I might, I enjoyed the bejesus out of watching John Jones and Daniel Cormier fight each other at UFC 182 on Saturday night. Uh, the main event itself was as electric as any UFC fight that I think we've seen in a while, which uh, I think is a, is a special compliment to this fight, considering that, as we said off the top, before fight lead up to the actual main event, I uh, was a little bit tepid at UFC 182. One of the reasons that I wanted to do one round about the fight itself, and then in round three, I think we'll talk about some of the stuff surrounding the fight, is that uh, I really felt like this fight was not only a cool tactical fight, but it had... Uh, an aspect that you often see, um, with like championship level boxing fights where people talk about how, uh, the fight itself really tells a story. And I think, you know, in a lot of MMA fights, you don't get quite that same feeling, but, uh, I sure got it in Jones Cormier, uh, just because, uh, of the back and forth nature of the fight and, and some of the tactical things that I think changed over the course of the five rounds. Um, so I hope that we can talk a little bit about that. What are your immediate thoughts, uh, heading out of this fight? You know, it kind of left me feeling like 
if John Jones can do that to Daniel Cormier and if he can adapt his, his game plan and uh, adapt his strategy as they go the way he did there and just really take over late in a fight, which is also kind of what he did to Alexander Gustafson, um, it's, that's trouble for a lot of people in the light heavyweight division. The, the seeing the way he handled Daniel Cormier late in that fight, uh, and just kind of the, the air of dominance that he started to take on, um, that just really makes you think that John Jones is going to be champion of the light heavyweight division for as long as he wants to be. Yeah, he really is checking off all the boxes, right? Because one of the things about MMA fighters, especially when they're dominant, is that that early dominance at times can mask some flaws. And so, you know, when you have somebody like, say, Ronda Rousey, who has a tendency to beat her opponents really, really fast, you still have these lingering questions like, all right, well, what about when someone takes her into the championship rounds? What about when she gets clocked really hard in the face? How is she going to respond to adversity? With John Jones, uh, we know a lot of the answers to those questions at this point, uh, and they're all good answers for him and bad answers for everyone else. Uh, he got his chin tested in this fight uh, a little bit by Daniel Cormier uh, in this fight and the last or and the Gustafson fight now we've seen him respond to some adversity we've seen him take over during the last 10 minutes and the one thing that you said that I just want to add to is that even though we talk a lot about John Jones's size and we talk a lot about his creativity and his athleticism you know one thing that I don't know that we talk enough about with him that we saw in this fight is his ability to adapt because uh uh, you know, the way that he ended up beating Daniel Cormier during the final 10 minutes is I, I don't think that is the way that he anticipated beating Daniel Cormier. And I don't think that that necessarily was the game plan uh, coming into this fight to kind of uh, beat Daniel Cormier in the clinch. Yeah, well, and I mean, it seems like we always make such a big deal about John Jones's size and reach, right? Especially the reach because he has such a, such a long reach. And so we're always wondering, especially with Cormier, who's a, a little bit shorter for the division, uh, you know, how is he going to get inside? How is he going to get in there and attack John Jones? And he didn't really have too much of a problem with that. I mean, I think you give the first round to John Jones, but you give the second round to Daniel Cormier. I mean, he was doing a good job. He, he started putting together more combos, going to the body a little bit more, getting in there, and, and he was finding a way to, to get inside and, and do some damage to John Jones. Um, but then instead of it being a contest to see like, okay, can Cormier get inside and can Jones keep him outside? Uh, it just became, okay, Jones is going to let him inside and just beat him there. You know, he stifled him in the clinch there, uh, and just kind of wore him down, used, you know, his takedowns, which I don't think a lot of us saw coming that it was going to be John Jones who would win the takedown battle, uh, by a lot. Uh, and, you know, just kind of gradually wear him down and beat him up. Uh, until, you know, you got there to the end. I think that, that final exchange there, we all, we made a lot about the, the celebrating and the punches and then the punches after the, the horn from Daniel Cormier. But what you kind of saw there was Cormier is going for a takedown, right? John Jones starts celebrating, like stops kind of fighting the takedown and puts his arms up to kind of celebrate and Cormier kind of gives up, like kind of feels that as like, okay, I guess we're close enough to the end that we're done. Um, and John and Jones turns around and blasts him right in his face. Left, like left hook right in his grill right after that. And it was kind of like you could just see in Cormier that like Jones had, had made that point to him by then that he was ready to quit. And, and not like quit as in like, you know, he was looking for a way out or, or looking to, uh, you know, to give up and put himself into a submission or something and get out of there. But just that he had, he had accepted by that point that he wasn't going to win that fight. And you could see it kind of in his body language after the fourth where his coaches are yelling at him, uh, telling him, you got to go out there and get a finish. You know, do you want this? And 
he just did not seem like the same guy who was sure he was going to win uh, that he was coming into that. Like by that point, he had kind of felt what John Jones had to offer and it kind of run out of answers. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And obviously we've seen John do this thing now a few times where he seems to go out and beat the opposing fighter at the, at his opponent's strengths, or at least what his opponent considers to be his strengths coming in. Uh, and this fight I think was another good example of that even. Uh, even though I don't necessarily know that it was the game plan coming in, was that, as you mentioned, in the first round, it kind of seemed like John Jones was just going to be too big and that he was going to be too rangy, and he did a good job keeping Daniel Cormier out there at the end of his very long punches and his kicks. He used his kicks well. Uh, he blasted him with a straight left a couple of times uh, pretty hard. And then in the second, we saw Daniel Cormier uh, prove that he could kind of bull his way in through those defenses and get... Uh, to the point where he was, you know, fighting at, at the range where he wanted to be in close with the clinch and did a lot of good work with dirty boxing there and landed some, some solid uppercuts. And the thing that really made Jones look dominant in this fight was when he switched his, his strategy and said, okay, if Daniel Cormier is going to get inside on me, I guess I better just take over the clinch game. Because when he did that and when Daniel Cormier couldn't take him down, Daniel Cormier didn't have anywhere else to go, yeah. which I think again speaks to the greatness of John Jones in that, uh, we knew that he was going to have uh, perhaps a more diverse skill set coming into this, and I think that that definitely turned out to be true. He took away the two things that Daniel Cormier thought he could do, uh, and after that, Cormier didn't have anything anywhere to turn, really. Yeah, well, and I also think that uh, one of the things that dominating the clinch game helps you do against a guy like Daniel Cormier is, you know, Cormier kind of tries to fight at times with that same approach that Cain Velasquez uses, where um, the pace is what gets you, that he just kind of wears you down by constantly staying on you and staying so busy and so active and, and, and the attack is so relentless that it wears guys down. It wears you down mentally, you know, because you just don't get a chance to kind of take a, a mental break and think about your offense. You're constantly thinking about that guy's offense. And if you're winning that clinch game, however, like you slow the fight down and you turn it into something more that, that you can control and that you want uh, and you take that away from him. And that's what John Jones was able to do there. Uh, and I think also when you like we we've talked about this before but like the more he is able to to show off what he can do against guys with different skill sets and different game plans and different body types the more you you're left to wonder like what do you do cuz he can take a punch really well he against Glover Teixeira he took a lot more than he really needed to almost it seemed like at times to prove like hey is this oh so this guy's supposed to be a good boxer or something supposed to be a, a slugger and and can really hit hard that's the selling point all right I'll let him hit me a couple times just so you can tell that I'm not going anywhere. This guy's supposed to be a wrestler. All right, I'll shrug off his takedowns and I'll take him down. Uh, and then I'll put my hand on his forehead like, a, you know, I'm messing with a toddler kind of thing, right. like just as I walk away. Like like he's just kind of, like you said, checking off the boxes to where do you just sit around and wait for him to get old like Chuck Liddell so that his chin goes away? Uh, what do you do? Yeah, it's, at this point, it's a mystery. Uh, and I think, you know, one thing that we need to men mention quickly before we move on is that like... For John Jones at this point, it's not just that he's beating guys. He's like fucking swallowing these guys whole. He is just dominating people and destroying them, like taking them on uh, at what they do best and 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 just devouring them, which I think will is is plays into an aspect of his personality that I hope we get to talk about I in round will. three. I, I think, think we I, might. I think we will too. But to me, like seeing him do that to Daniel Cormier, like seeing him not only defeat Daniel Cormier, uh, but like 
I don't want to say break him, but like, as you said, defeat him in such a manner that at the end of the fight, Daniel Cormier seemed defeated, uh, is to me the most impressive thing that, that I've seen John Jones do in the cage. And that's saying something because he does impressive stuff every time he goes out there. Uh, let's do, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then we'll move on to round number two, uh, today. What's your, what's your, are you fucking kidding me for this week? Well, Chad, uh, as I'm sure you noticed, uh, we got the chance to, uh, hear about a lot of different things over the course of the UFC 182 broadcast. Um, we heard about Banshee, which is apparently uh-huh. it's a hit show, uh, a hit show that's been on for several seasons, and I've never fucking heard about it ever. So Over on the Cinemax. So that tells you what a hit it is. Uh, we got to hear from Conor McGregor for an extended period of time. Uh, and, you know, we got to we got to hear about Harley Davidson a good amount. Uh, we got to talk about CM Punk and show him hanging out in the crowd. Uh, you know what we didn't really get to do was hear much from the two guys in the main event after their fight because we were running out of time on the pay-per-view broadcast. We heard a little bit from John Jones in a post-fight interview, nothing from Daniel Cormier. Even the John Jones interview was rushed because Joe Rogan had to keep noting that we were running out of time. You know why you ran out of time? Because you did all this other bullshit. It's the main event. Where's the falling action, Chad? Where's the chance for us to let the moment land? These yeah. other, you, know, you can't expect everybody to sit around at midnight or 2 a.m., wherever they are, watching the press post-fight press conference on YouTube uh, just to be able to hear from people. You pay 60 damn dollars. You ought to be able to hear from the guys after the fight to find out what they're thinking about. Are you fucking kidding me, Banshee? Fuck out of here. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? Uh, Tim Sylvia showed up to fight somebody this week named... Giuliano Coutinho nailed it at something called Reality Fighting 53 at the Mohegan Sun Casino in Uncasville, Connecticut, uh, weighing 371 pounds. What? But the fight was canceled after the Mohegan <laughs> Tribal Athletic Commission found some irregularities in the pre-fight medicals, some of them relating to Tim Sylvia's weight. He had swallowed a license plate like that shark in Jaws. Uh, <laughs> that's possible. You know, according to a post on the underground today, Sylvia, uh, has retired from MMA. Uh, and, you know, look, I don't want to, uh, to throw Tim Sylvia under the bus here because he's gained a bunch of weight. Uh, you know, frankly, I know what that's like. And I assume that there is a fair amount of depression going on for Tim Sylvia to end his career, uh, in this way, at least for the moment. Uh, and despite the raft of shit that he's always gotten from MMA fans, he's always kind of seemed like a good hearted dude to me. But, um, I don't even know how we get to this point. Man, I don't know how we get to the point where there are people trying to book Tim Sylvia for fights, either knowing or even worse, not knowing that he's going to roll in pushing four bills. I don't know who is trying to find fights for Tim Sylvia uh, when he's rolling around at 371 pounds. And I don't know how Tim Sylvia has gotten to the point that he feels like he still needs to go out and fight nobodies in Connecticut when he's almost 400 pounds, assumedly, I guess, because he needs the money. Um, so I guess, are you fucking kidding me? Cruel world. Okay. Fucking kidding me, cruel world. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Nice moving belly. 
Well, Chad, Donald Cerrone took a break from auditioning to be Dave Cortez's or Dan Cortez, whoever that guy was on MTV Sports who did all the real Dan Cortez. Dan Cortez. Nice reference. Who did all the uh, extreme sports shit. Uh, you know, I'm sure they're going to resurrect that series any day now so that Donald Cerrone can host it and go around flying in jet planes and racing Ferraris and all that other bullshit. But in the meantime, he's still a pro fighter, it turns out. And he went out there and beat Miles Jury in a, a pretty clear decision victory, which I regarded as a, a good win for Donald Cerrone, a good performance that allowed him to show off a few different things, and which he seemed utterly goddamn depressed about afterwards, and explained that the reason he was literally kicking Miles Jury in the ass there at the end... Well, let's, uh, let's not just kicking him, but like kicking him with an unusual purpose yes, to it. Winding up uh, with what he re later referred to as fuck you kicks was because he was so upset about how the fight had gone. Now, maybe I just am looking for a different kind of thing out of my fights uh, when I'm watching than Donald Cerrone thinks he is supposed to deliver for us. I feel like he's been a little hard on himself here because honestly, I mean, here's a fight where, you know, the second round was a little bit slow and, and nobody did a whole lot there. But the first round, he gets taken down, goes for an omoplata on Miles Jury, uh, then takes his back and nearly chokes him. I mean, hey, cool, man. Cool stuff. Way to remind us that you have a, a pretty dangerous guard and that uh, you can be a dangerous guy off your back. Then uh, in the third round... Kicks him upside his head, kind of goes on the attack and uh, shrugs off a takedown in the last minute and then responds by immediately going for a takedown of his own as if to be like, hey, that's that's what a takedown is supposed to look like, kid, and then goes all crazy kicking him in the legs. I mean, it feels like a pretty solid performance. Maybe one Donald Cerrone shouldn't be so upset about. Well, he is hard on himself and he's always been hard on himself. And I think that that is one of the things that makes Donald Cerrone uh, an interesting dude because like not only does he have this thing, uh, where he seems to not be able to conceive of the future and therefore wants to fight, uh, as many times as he possibly can, uh, pictures on the Twitter machine of him today hanging around the UFC office, refusing to leave until they find him another fight. Also, uh, as somebody pointed out on Twitter, it looked like he was maybe sucking on a lollipop. So Miles Jury did have to hand out that lollipop after all. Uh, it looked, I, I think the context of this tweet was that Cowboy penciled himself in opposite Matt Brown, uh, at 170 pounds for, uh, that there at that upcoming event, which frankly, dude, do, let's do it. Like, if we can do that and everybody thinks it's cool, I will watch the shit out of that fight. But, you know, not only is there that aspect of Donald Zeroni's personality and the aspect where he seems to have figured out the perfect formula to market himself to MMA fans with a 10-gallon hat and a Budweiser sponsorship and jumping out of planes and having a weird southern, southern, uh, subtle southern accent, even though everyone knows goddamn well and good he's from Colorado. And from, like, an upper-class family in Colorado. Uh, also, that's not a 10-gallon hat. That's like a cowboy. A 10-gallon hat is like one of those big-ass hats, right? I think a 10-gallon hat is synonymous with cowboy hat. I don't. I think you're wrong about that, but I'm sure we'll get some emails. All right. Well, let's do some. Let's do some internet research on that. Uh, but you know, he's also got this aspect of his personality where he's like a super, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, sober professional. Even though we don't think of him as being sober all the time. Interesting phrasing, but all uh, right. Where he is really hard on himself. Remember when he uh, uh, knocked out Adriano Martins at like 4:40 of the first round and came away from the fight being like I thought it was a crappy performance I started too slow and and like that seems to really needle him and he does have this reputation as being a slow starter uh and and 
it, it kind of, you know, on top of everything else, it makes him feel like uh, a true student of his craft, if you will, which I guess uh, is maybe the answer to a que- to the question, which has always kind of lingered for me, like, how does he fit in at that Jackson gym where, uh, you know, you oftentimes have a real high minded approach from Greg Jackson uh, and and uh, a more sort of drill sergeant approach from Mike Winklejohn. Uh, and I think when you find out that, you know, how hard on himself Cowboy Cerrone is, it makes you realize, oh, yeah, like he's he's a serious professional dude who's among the best guys at this really, really good gym. Yeah, you know, and there's no accident that, you know, he the dude's on a six-fight winning streak in the UFC. Like, that's not happening in just... In the toughest division. Yeah, so. that's not happening just by being, like, a tough guy who comes to brawl. You know, you, you have to have some skill to do that kind of stuff. And it's also, I think, uh, one of the things that I think seems counterintuitive based on how you watch or how you see him fight uh, is the struggles he's admitted to having with the mental game in the past uh, and just the the difficulty he's had with... You know, when you're given a fight six weeks out and you have a lot of time to sit around and think about it. And that seems to be part of why he wants to fight so much. I mean, the other part seems to be because he spends so damn much money on, like, you know, wakeboarding equipment and boats and snowmobiles and shit like that that he's probably got to fight a bunch. Uh, but he does seem to like to stay super active like that so that he doesn't have a chance to sit around and dwell too much on it. Uh, like, he, he always says that he misses those days when he was kickboxing and fighting every weekend. Um, because then it just starts to feel like something you show up and do rather than something that you build up into your mind until you're super nervous about it. Uh, but I don't, I mean, to me, it seems like it's one of those things where everybody loves, you know, to watch Cowboy Cerrone show up, do his cowboy thing, you know, kick somebody's ass, sometimes literally, uh, and then go on his merry way and talk about how he can't wait to get in there again. Uh, it still doesn't seem like people are ready to start to think seriously about a Cowboy Cerrone title shot. I mean, I know he's got that loss to Anthony Pettis, and uh, you know Pettis looked pretty awesome putting him away in that one, and not too many people have put uh, Cowboy Cerrone away. I think it's just him and Benson Henderson, really. Uh, is this the kind of fight where, I mean, Miles Jury said he was going to ask for a title shot if he beat Donald Cerrone. Is this the kind of thing where we start talking about Donald Cerrone in a title shot? Well, yes and no. I mean, I think he's getting close to the point where you can't really deny him that top contender status. Uh, but at the same time, like you mentioned, he's got the bad lost Anthony Pettis and like sort of a, a resume of, of falling short in, in top fights that goes back even further than that. I mean, the guy lost three WEC lightweight title fights before he even came to the UFC. Uh, and then after coming to the UFC, kind of had this thing where he would always win a couple fights and then lose one. I mean, from, January 2009, uh, or wait, no, I'm looking, that's when he was in the WEC losing those fights. Uh, you know, in, uh, 2011 to 2013, he would, you know, he started out of his UFC career kind of on a tear, but then he lost to Nate Diaz, then he won two fights, then he lost to Anthony Pettis, then he beat KJ Nunes, and he lost to Rafael Dos Anjos. So, like, I think it's a, a combination of things where we've seen him lose to some top guys like Ben Henderson, uh, Pettis, and Dos Anjos, and we've also seen him, uh, you know, fall short when he's, when he gets these bigger opportunities. Uh, but at this point, man, you can't deny all these wins in a row. It kind of seems like he's finally put it all together. Uh, I see that Habib Nurmagomedov is trying to bait him into a number one contender fight. So like, uh, I would think that most of the prognosticators would think that that one probably wouldn't come out that great for Cowboy Cerrone. But like, if he were to get a fight like that and go in and win it, I mean, at that point, I don't think you could really deny him, could you? Well, see, that that's what it seems like he needs right now, is he needs a fight where we don't expect him to win it. Like, if he wants to to make that case for a title shot to get 
from that point where we think, oh, hey, Donald Cerrone's on the car. Isn't that awesome? Like, that'll be a fun time to get to the point where we think, hey, is Donald Cerrone the best lightweight in the world? I don't know. Let's find out. Like, in order to make that leap, uh, he needs to be in one of those fights where we look at it on paper and it seems like he's supposed to lose. Because when you go out against the guys like Miles Jury, it seems like an awesome opportunity for Miles Jury. Like, it seems like his chance to prove that he belongs in there, like, to be considered with the top lightweights. I mean, that's what a win over Donald Cerrone means for anybody like that right now, right? Um, you, if you go out there and you're just beating up the dudes uh, lower down on the ranks than you, it doesn't necessarily give you that extra little boost you need. Uh, and, I mean, that's kind of the downside to his attitude of, hey, whoever, I'll fight whoever, just, you know, I don't care about the rankings, I don't care about the number next to the guy's name, just tell me when and where and I'll be there and I'll fight the dude. And that's fine, that's a good way to make a lot of money, but if you give a shit about getting to a title shot uh, and, and getting a belt around your waist someday, then you need to fight against somebody like Nurmi. Yeah, that's a good point. Like, he does kind of need a, a step-up fight, I, I guess you could say. it. And it kind of seemed like he called out Miles Jury because, uh, as we mentioned last week on the podcast, Miles Jury has kind of previously had this thing where he seemed to rub people the wrong way. And one of the guys that he uh, made some statements about after the fight was Diego Sanchez. And Diego Sanchez obviously is a uh, training partner of Cowboy Cerrone down at, at Jackson's in Albuquerque. And so that I think that a little bit, that's maybe where those fuck you kicks came from partially at the end of the fight not only was Cowboy Cerrone uh, apparently legitimately mad at how the fight had played out but like I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of get back in those kicks for Diego Sanchez too um so yeah, I think you're right that he needs to 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 take a a step up fight against somebody like Nurmagomedov but like as we say all the time like the danger of conducting your career in the way that Cowboy Cerrone does is that if you just if you keep insisting that the UFC gives you all these fights and you won't leave Vegas until they give you one, like you're going to end up taking some fights that, that feel either out of the blue or maybe a little bit beneath your, your station in life. And at some point you're going to lose one just because there ain't a man alive that can fight in the lightweight division as, as much as Anthony or as much as uh cowboy Cerrone does without eventually losing one. And like, uh, it's worked out for him so far, but like eventually I think it's going to, it would have to come around to bite him. If it doesn't, that, that'll be an amazing, amazing turn of events. Yeah. He also seems to just not give as much of a shit right. uh, about that stuff as he does, other he, fighters do. He does. He has indicated that he wants to fight for the title in 2015 or that he will fight for the title in 2015, but I do agree that that seems like an altogether secondary concern for him. Um, but that's going to do it for round number two. Uh, we'll be right back with round number three. Ben will not to sound too much like a person who runs a rhetoric program at a small liberal arts university. There's a lot to unpack here. Wow. You went there huh? in the John Jones, Daniel Cormier feud. There's like 12 people in our listening audience who are really going to enjoy that. Yeah. But now everyone's going to be saying unpack all the time. Yeah. And and sounding like assholes. We're going to get into something great here. Uh, one of the reasons why I felt like this was an iconic performance by, by Jones, like maybe even potentially career defining when it's all said and done and we look back on it is that we got the opportunity in this fight and all the stuff surrounding this fight to see every facet of John Jones. We saw his greatness during the fight. 
uh, which we already talked about. And then we also saw a lot of the aspects of his personality that have always rubbed people the wrong way in this sport. And I wonder if we also saw maybe sort of a subtle but important turn for John Jones during the lead up and then the aftermath to this fight. I don't like when people say that he's quote unquote going full heel or anything like that, but I wonder if we've seen him fully embrace this kind of villain role and, and got get to the point where not only does he not care what people think about him, but uh, has crossed over a little bit into understanding that as an important part of his marketability, because I feel like previous previous to the Daniel Cormier feud, like people didn't like him, but they were more just like kind of annoyed with him. And I wonder if moving forward, he will have crossed into that territory where people will really want to see him lose. And that seems like an important step to me for John Jones to sort of become the crossover star that we've always thought that he had the potential to be. You know, I do think when we start to talk about it in terms of like, you know, going heel or like, you know, a heel turn or embracing the the dark side kind of thing, I think we're oversimplifying it uh, because right. – I think that uh, one of the things that we we see the more we get to know John Jones um, is that he's a weird dude. And, you know, that's kind of fitting because he's also like a brilliant fighter. And people who are brilliant at stuff are often weird dudes. And I think that makes him kind of easier to understand. Like if he's the dude who like, you know, can go out there and do this stuff where he – he, he apologizes for being classless right before he then goes on to continue to do what he regards as classless. Uh, and his talk about Daniel Cormier, the stuff about going on there on TV and telling Brian Stan and Dominic Cruz that he hopes, uh, DC is off crying somewhere right now. I'm sure he is. Speaking of which, if you can still find that video from Fox Sports on YouTube, it's worth your time if you didn't see it live to just to see the face that yes. Brian Stan makes when John Jones says that because Brian Stan asked him the question. So he's responding to a question that Brian Stan asked him. And then Brian Stan makes this face, which is totally understandable from Brian Stan, where you can tell that he just finds that distasteful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and he's buddies with, with Cormier from their commentary duties and, and analyst duties and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, he does. There's a Stan face there that is going worth going and looking up. Um, but like stuff like that. And then, you know, he goes to the press conference and he's talking about how he likes to watch his opponents on tape because he can absorb their powers or like how he went out into the crowd before the fight because he wanted to draw energy from the fans. And you're like, oh, you're also just like, you're kind of kooky, aren't you? Uh, and he is like, he is when you, when you do interviews with him and stuff, you know, he'll always, there's always going to be something weird. Like in every interview you do with John Jones, like, and I think that that, like that stuff, he's coming into a, a sharper focus the more he stops trying to be some like imagined version of himself that he wanted to project to us. Like, and the more we start to see this stuff, we're like, oh, like if you get into a rivalry like that with John Jones, he will be super fucking mean. Uh, not only like in the fight, but he will just have a cold, pitiless heart, uh, towards you afterwards. Uh, I mean, and I feel like that's fine. Like I'd much rather see this kind of like authentic, kooky, uh, mean, cocky, uh, even classless John Jones than like him constantly trying to like be a character that he thinks that we want. Cause that obviously wasn't working anyway. Yeah. It's a better look, even though it's not necessarily a positive change in, in, in how we view him. Uh, you know, one of the weird things, uh, that or not, I guess one of the interesting things when I, I talked to Brandon Gibson last week for the feature that I wrote on, on Bleacher Report, uh, was that I asked him, 
Because, you know, we, one of the strange things, you talk to these MMA coaches and to a man, they're they're like super nice dudes, right? Like they're understanding, they're patient. And I think you have to be to be to like devote your life to coaching. But like you talk to a lot of these guys uh, and they just seem like really nice guys. And so when I was talking to Brandon Gibson, I was like knowing that he is super tight with John Jones and they're like uh, really good friends and travel together and stuff like that. I was like, I had to ask him, I was like, well, why do you think people don't like John Jones? You know, like, and why are you guys friends basically? Uh, and I didn't end up putting it in the story. Uh, but the, the answer that he gave me was like, well, you know, sometimes I have to treat John Jones like an artist because he is wacky and he does these like over the top things. And he has this like strange, gigantic African cat that he, that he let <laughs> yes, lives with him yes. at his house. Uh, as we know, um, that he, and then he insists on taking with him. Like yeah. He, it was in his hotel it, room at the took Vegas. Him with him to Vegas. So like, and I didn't end up using it for the story, but I just thought that was interesting that like, yeah, man, John Jones is eccentric and in a lot of ways we find him distasteful, but I also wonder if it's kind of not fair for us to expect him to be anything other than that. Like, I think it's unfair maybe for us to expect him to be a normal, likable dude when like clearly he's kind of a superhuman when it comes to fighting, like just enormous and well-rounded and talented and creative and thinks that he absorbs your strengths by watching you through the television, which at this point, I'm not sure that he doesn't. <laughs> so well, like, I don't know, man, maybe like we should just accept him for what he is, even though it's, it's to make Brian Stan face distasteful. Yeah. Well, and see, that's the thing is that we, we need to be able to, to see that stuff in order to accept him. I think he's kind of done himself a disservice at times by trying to, like get this thing in his head where he wants to be this you know church boy like kind of the certain image he has of himself uh or at least the one that he wants us to have of him that he thinks that he is doing a good job of putting out there but really the effort he's putting into it that shows uh and it makes people then assume like well there must be some secret self there that he's trying to hide what is it and they just assume like well he must be really cocky or arrogant or something like that and really i think you're right that the truth is something more that um he's just a wacky dude like that he is an artist uh like like dan white used to say about anderson silva that dealing with him was like dealing with an artist and it seems like maybe we didn't quite get that as much from anderson silva or maybe we gave him a, a break on it because the language barrier, we just didn't really hear much from Anderson in Anderson's own words. And with John Jones, it's different. And I think that, you know, even if people are gonna, gonna hate that or gonna find it distasteful, uh, and make stand face about it, uh, then at least, you know, it's better to feel like we're doing that about something that's actually more relatable to, to who the guy really is. And I feel like that's fine. I mean, we don't need you to be some good guy, uh, to be the UFC champion. Like, I think we'd be way more comfortable if it turned out that you were some crazy dude who also had these just amazing gifts uh, in the cage. Like, people are going to want to see that shit. Did we, in the wake of this fight, stumble into a goddamn super fight in that if things work out correctly, which they almost never do in this sport, so maybe we're already asking too much, but, you know, John, if John Jones has one more fight at light heavyweight, against the winner of Anthony Johnson and Alexander Gustafson uh, near the end of this month, and he wins that fight. If you look around the light heavyweight division, there's not a ton else for him to do at the moment. Uh, and that that timeline could conceivably sync up 
with the return of Cain Velasquez, if Velasquez manages to reclaim the undisputed heavyweight title uh, from Fabricio Verdum, because now you've got Jones saying that he would fight Cain Velasquez, quote unquote, in a heartbeat, and you've got a backstage vine of uh, Cain Velasquez consoling just an inconsolable, frankly, Daniel Cormier, like, did we just kind of tumble ass backward into the biggest fight on the planet. Well, you know, you're right that it seems like it's, it's gotta be like, if, it, if he say Gustafson comes out the winner there and he fights Gustafson and he beats him and say he beats him soundly, say it turns out that all that stuff was true, that he did not really train hard for the first fight, took him too lightly. And that's why it ended up being so close and such a dog fight there. Say he trains super hard for, for the rematch and just demolishes Gustafson. Uh, then, I mean, unless, the UFC is close to signing the big homie Manny Newton uh, to come over from Bellator and really put that title up on the line, then yeah, you would think that the the money fight then is is at heavyweight for him. And with John Jones sounding like he's open to it, and with the whole teammate aspect of it, like if you're Cain Velasquez and you hear John Jones say he'd fight you in a heartbeat, you can't really feel like he necessarily uh, has a ton of respect for your abilities, if he's phrasing it that way. Yeah, I mean, that does seem like uh, a huge fight to make. It's also, though, I feel like, man, I don't, I can't go through this again, Chad. I went through this with GSP Anderson Silva for years. Uh, I can't do it, man. I can't, I can't be emotionally tortured by the thought of a, of a John Jones Cain Velasquez fight that we talk to death that never happens. Yeah, it seems like too much to hope for, especially when one of those dudes is perennially on the IR, just like all the time. Yeah. Uh, and John Jones not immune to injury either, as, as we've found out. Uh, let's spend a couple minutes talking about Daniel Cormier before we gotta get out, gotta get out of here. Uh, tough loss for him. Obviously devastating. He's 35 years old. Uh, he comes to the press conference and breaks down, uh, in tears, essentially saying that he's had to rebuild himself so many times previously in his life. Uh, but Clint saying that this isn't going to ruin him, that he'll be back. He wants to fight Jones again. Uh, uh, what does he do moving forward? Does, you know, stick around the light heavyweight division, take a contender fight, uh, wait for Jones to evacuate the, the division. Like what's the best way forward for Daniel Cormier now? Well, I think what he's probably going to do is try to work his way back in there. And it seemed like he's already talking about how he thinks that, you know, he can get back in there and fight John Jones again and, and beat him next time around. And I mean, I guess you've got to think that way. I feel like Cormier is the guy who comes out looking like the, the most relatable person in this, the, the guy that you can most, uh, feel some empathy with and, and connect with uh like john jones like you talk about like he comes out looking like a superhuman like a guy who just operates according to a completely different set of rules in all regards uh i mean when's the last time you took your african cat with you on a plane to vegas uh but daniel cormier is the guy who comes out looking like yeah well that's that's what happens to normal people even normal people who are really really good and work really really hard and want it really really badly and then they get in there and you know they get up against a, a mutant like John Jones and they get beat and then they cry afterwards i mean that's that's how that shit works uh and you feel just fucking heartbroken for the guy especially you see that that bind of him and Kane Velasquez there uh man that that stings just to, to watch it on his behalf and to know what a, a nice dude he is, a good dude and, and how much he's been through in his life. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, he gets back in there with John Jones again. I can't say I see it going any better for him, you know, and if his teammate is holding it down up at heavyweight, you know, what's he supposed to do? I'm not concerned that he's going to be run out of the sport by this or anything. And I think he will rebuild himself and I don't think it's, it's going to break him. Um, but it also does seem to, to show that as long as John Jones is, 
around and, and, and in the sport, Cormier might have found his ceiling. All right, well, let's do just saying stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, UFC featherweight sensation Conor McGregor has a fight coming up in just 13 days in Boston. Oh, boy. Which is awesome. Seems like a pretty good deal, uh, except, I don't know, man, I guess this week I'm just saying it'll be a shame if the UFC can't find anybody for him to fight, you know? I mean, right now it just seems like they don't have anybody. I saw this UFC Fight Night 59 promo during UFC 182, uh, and it only had McGregor in it, and then they did a big taped interview with him as you mentioned, uh, via satellite from the fictional city of Dublin uh, during the pay-per-view broadcast. But, you know, there's, there's no split screen there. There's nobody on the other side of Joe Rogan. I remember the first promo that they did for this fight. There was a couple of seconds of this little German elf. I remember in that. It. You had to look but, fast. I don't, I don't know what happened to that guy. Like maybe he got sick or maybe he wandered off or maybe he ran into a department store and hid in the middle of a big garment rack and no one can find him. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm just saying this week, I hope they can find a guy to fight Conor McGregor at this upcoming fight, fight night because it would be a shame if all of this advanced advertising has to go to waste. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Chad, this week, I'm just saying, uh, you might have heard, as Dana White said in a pre-fight scrum uh, before UFC 182, and you're sitting down talking to a few reporters, uh, that it sounds like the UFC is scrapping their plan to do uh, increased testing, uh, basically kind of out-of-competition testing of everybody on the roster in the UFC, uh, based, according to Dana White, on the whole debacle that happened with Kung Lee's uh, positive test for elevated uh, human growth hormone, which the UFC then had to basically rescind and say, we fucked it up. Uh, and according to Dana White, who said that uh, the legal team fucked it up and that we'll fuck it up again. Uh, if we do it, so therefore, they're just not going to do it. Now, I'm just saying, you're still going to go to all these places that don't have commissions, right? Like Macau and shit like that and, you know, fictional cities and, and, and all kinds of countries that you just made up five minutes ago. You're still going to go to those places because you're after some global domination shit. But what, you're going to go there and not test? Or you're going to go there and still test? Because you kind of just told everybody that you think that you're awful at it. But if you don't do it, and then if you're in a place where nobody does it, what the hell will that mean? I'm just saying, it doesn't seem like the UFC is drawing the right conclusions from that whole Kung Lee episode. Just saying. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to look ahead to UFC Fight Night 59 featuring Conor McGregor versus To Be Decided. Uh, there's also going to be a Bellator show that week, so we'll have lots of stuff to talk about. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know who they should get uh, to fight Conor McGregor? Who's that? Uh, well, you know, maybe if we can get somebody like... Uh, Somebody, like, remember when in Fight Club where they had those little scenes of like pornography spliced in? Yes. To, yeah. Yeah. So if we can get somebody, like somebody from one of those porns, we can just splice it into the porn.